Kurt Vonnegut shaped my generation very much. Now with a new generation, there's a new book about Kurt Vonnegut's writing and the many lives of Slaughterhouse-Five. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for the few, the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. With the unthinkable madness of the war in Ukraine suddenly in our face, there's no surprise that there's a renewed and growing interest in the work of Kurt Vonnegut. Much loved in my generation, we had the context of the mad catastrophe of America's pointless and futile war in Vietnam to frame the author's breakthrough revelations of the mindless, murderous insanity of mass killing of German civilians in their supposedly safe city of Dresden, in his Vonnegut's immensely popular Slaughterhouse-Five. That brought us aware of that amazing happening. It seemed that virtually every 20-something American male who was not in Vietnam during the time really loved that book, Slaughterhouse-Five. Today, some 50 years later, anybody who ever read that book and who thinks about the nature and realities of war has a place for it deep in their soul. I really believe that. In many ways, Slaughterhouse-Five defines a generation, and now a new generation is waking up to its unique wisdom, horror, and humor, and the horrible reality we generally do our best not to see. Our guest today is Tom Rostin, who has a new book titled The Writer's Crusade, Kurt Vonnegut and the Many Lives of Slaughterhouse-Five. Vonnegut was of the World War II generation. He was directly in it. I am of the Vietnam generation, and today we have the Ukraine War generation. The slaughter of innocence, the madness which supersedes sanity, somehow makes me think of Captain Kurtz in Apocalypse Now. The horror. The horror. Who and why would anybody want to look at that? Well, because it's real because it's there every day in Ukraine and elsewhere, and was certainly there in Dresden when Vonnegut was there, and because it has much to teach us about who we are as humans. And perhaps, maybe, possibly, we can still learn and become better humans. Our guest today is journalist Tom Rostin. Thanks so much for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Tom Rustin worked at The Nation and Vanity Fair and was a senior editor premier for more than a decade. His work has appeared in The New York Times, New York Magazine, Lit Hub, and more. He's the author of two previous books, I Lost It at the Video Store, A Filmmaker's Oral History of a Vanished Era, and The Most Spectacular Restaurant in the World. Oh, I'd love to find out where that is. Again, the new book is The Writer's Crusade, Kurt Vonnegut and the Many Lives of Slaughterhouse-Five. A book about a book. I suppose for my generation, the question is, how can anybody not have read Slaughterhouse-Five? 
in preparing for this discussion, my eyes have been opened to what I really preferred not to see. Probably the vast majority of young Americans probably don't know about this literary jewel, Slaughterhouse-Five. Then again, when it was written, no doubt the vast majority knew nothing about Dresden in World War II. What was Vonnegut's uh, experienced there that is the core of Slaughterhouse-Five and what you call the absolute obscenity of evil saw that we didn't want to see. So how did you come up with this title? And why now? Very interesting title. What inspired you? Um, the, the title, it, it's always a, an interesting challenge coming up with the title because you, you want it to be so good. There's so much pressure and you, yet you want it to seem sort of, um, uh, like it was given no thought and it comes so easily. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and to me, the writer's crusade, I mean, it is a direct reference to this, one of the subtitles of Kurt's book, which is the children's crusade. It's oh, called Slaughterhouse yes. five, the children's crusade. So it's a reference to that. But to me, a large part of writing this book. Um, a book, my book about a book, was about Kurt's struggle to write it. I think as important as the book is it's, as itself, well, no, not as important, but it's incredibly important to me, not only the book itself, but also what it took for Kurt Vonnegut to write it. Mm. And so when you're thinking about that, yes, it, it naturally came to me that it was a crusade of his own. Um, and then, yes, there is a little tongue-in-cheek uh, reference to myself that I am the writer writing this book, so I've got a crusade. In fact, all writers have crusades when we try to write books or, you know, whatever we're trying to write. True, and it's it's an interesting point because I could imagine the struggle to write it. A lot of people who've been in wars, who've seen the horror, really, really don't want to live it again. They want to push it aside and not face it head on. But he didn't do I, that at all. Yeah, and I, I think by calling it a crusade, I mean, I do want to, I mean, it's, I, again, I'm, I'm trying to, um, I'm, I'm mirroring Kurt Vonnegut's sense of humor mm. because crusade is, there is a religious uh, overtone or undertone to that. And it, neither he nor I are religious people. Um, but it is a higher calling. I mean, it is a great higher calling that he had to write that book because he saw this awful thing in Dresden and he set out for the next 23 years to try to capture it in, in, in a novel. A crusade. I wonder, I'm just trying to trying to think of in what ways it's a crusade. I suppose he, uh, I'm just thinking off the top of my head that he uh, recognized how important this was and Perhaps there was a crusade to get it out there because it hadn't been known before. I had certainly never heard about the bombing of Dresden before Slaughterhouse Five. Uh, well, it's an anti anti war crusade. He saw the worst of war and he wanted to stop wars. And also, I mean, he he, I, you know, we know what a jokester he was. We also know what how incredibly thoughtful and and um, and frankly political he was. Yes. And he wanted to reach out to people and tell them, stop fighting wars and beware of technology and what we can do to each other. <laughs> and and so when he wrote a book, he wasn't just writing entertainment, although it was very entertaining. Um, he had a mission. He did have a mission. And boy, it hasn't been completed yet. That is for sure. No. For sure. We are yeah. a long way off from that. And I'm just thinking about so many things he introduced us to. But before we go too far in this, Dresden, in World War II, 
the United States, Britain, France, we were the, we were the unquestioned good guys. It was the Nazis who practiced unspeakable horror and evil. Oh, that wasn't us, or so we were taught. To my thinking, war among combatants, military against military, is one thing, but intentionally conducting mass murder of civilians, uh, that's something else. Yet, yeah, I mean, I mean, and, and I think you're referring to the bombing of Dresden, yes, um, where uh, during the war, I mean, or you, you could talk about Hiroshima, all these different yep. you know, times where uh, the Allies killed civilians intentionally, yes. Um, you know, yes, the goal was to we could say was to end the war, but you yeah. know, there's there's that fine line, and so yeah, so the the British and the US. Um, bombed a innocent civilian city. Um, there is some indication that they had some military function. In fact, Kurt didn't know that at the time and always said that there wasn't. But there has been some uh, some research that they may have been making some like bomb sites at some factory near Dresden. But yeah, I think that's neither here nor there. The fact is that that tens of thousands of German civilians. Women and children were killed in the bombing of, of Dresden in, in 1945. And where was Kurt Vonnegut when that happened? So, yeah, so um, so Kurt's the story of Kurt's uh, military service is one of horror and absurdity. <laughs> he he entered, he, he, he enlisted and he was sent over to Germany or actually he was in, in Belgium um, right in, in December of 1944, right you know, uh, right when the U.S. was about to defeat Germany, and right when Germany had its last breath and had this counteroffensive, which is now called the Battle of the Bulge. And so, within two weeks, I think maybe it was even just a week of his of his deploying and being on the ground, um, he was he was in the middle of this terrible, terrible uh, part of the war. Where I think about ninety thousand Americans were killed. It was the worst battle in, for the Americans in all uh, in the on the, the Western Front, um, and uh, it, he got caught, captured, and then he was made a prisoner, and then he was brought to Dresden, where he was a prisoner of war, and he was made to labor um, for the Nazis, and during that time. Uh, a couple months after he was captured and, and let, let put there um, was the bombing where he witnessed, well, he actually didn't witness. He was actually kept yeah. in, yes, Slaughterhouse-Five. He was kept in the cellar, and they heard the Allied bombing that happened for two or three days above uh, above them that was happening in Dresden. Yes, indeed it did. And uh, the, the British had started uh, trying to hit legitimate military targets in Germany, but they found it was too dangerous for their pilots. And so they switched to total indiscriminate war. And the same thing happened in uh, Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos. Back then it was called carpet bombing. And as you say, there are no good wars. Vietnam softened the culture to better recognize that fact. What do you mean by that? Well, it's, you know, I'm... I'm as you'll you know hear in my conversation with you, so much of my writing the book, I am constantly just trying to echo what Kurt did and what he said. So what he said was the reason he was able to write Slaughter's Five. He took him twenty three years to finish that book, but the reason he believes he was able to get it done those last few years 
was because of the Vietnam War, because the Vietnam War was showing how shabby, I think those are his, that's his exact word, mm-hmm. war was and how just pathetic and awful the, the military leaders were on the U.S. side, and that it just made any war look terrible. And so even the quote-unquote good war that, happened, that he was a part of um, in World War II, he felt like he could finally... Um, shed a light on on how all war was terrible because the current one, the one in Vietnam, had it was turning out so awfully. Yeah, it was, and it it didn't work. And uh, yeah, bombing civilians rarely works. Look, we know. I mean, it it only tends to fire people up. And I I graduated college a long time ago. Leave it at that. A lot of my college friends positively revered Kurt Vonnegut. And to be honest, I remain one of them. Absolutely mm. loved him. I still do. If only Great. the world at large could have had his wisdom. And I, I was there, you know, during the late 60s, early 70s, part of the anti-war movement was called the counterculture. I mm. was sad. I, I met a lot of the leaders, but I, I never had the honor of meeting Kurt Vonnegut. And I, I know many who would have sat at the feet of the wise man uh, really? And your research for this book must have been quite a story in itself. Tell us about that, please. Uh, it was it was a thrill. I and mean, that, that's my favorite part of, of writing a book. And to do it with someone who you can just uh, adore so much. Yeah. Um, it was great. You know, they, we, we have very few icons who we can you know, just love <laughs> unabashedly. Um, and, you know, he had his flaws. But the thing is, he was totally open about his flaws, you know, um, and so what I did was I approached the book. I, I, I looked at the book, at uh, his book, Slaughterhouse uh, Five, and thought, well, why is what, what's relevant about it today? Uh. And to me, what was most relevant was this issue of post-traumatic stress disorder. Yes. Because when you read that book, Slaughterhouse Five, um, as I did, you know, I, I read it when I was in high school, and I didn't. I don't think I really got it when I was in high school. But when I reread it I, I, again uh, in, in the, the research for my book, just to get it started, um, to me it was just like, okay, this is, has to be it. It has to be PTSD because this is what Billy Pilgrim, the main character, is suffering, and this is the one of the top, you know, hot button subjects that we're living with right now. Everyone talks about how we are living in a PTSD culture. Mm. People talk about it when they go to the coffee shop and someone you know, serves you too hot coffee. And people talk about it more legitimately when they're, you know, talking about one trauma after another. You know, there's, there's the the Me Too movement. There's the Black Lives Matter movement. There, there are all these different movements where people are talking about past suffering, current suffering, and everyone's traumatized. But I think, you know, and 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 I'm not going to delegitimize that notion. But I want to understand it, and I want to understand how Kurt Vonnegut lived in an era where there wasn't that as, as much understanding or talk about it, and yet he wrote a book that seemed to anticipate that culture. So I I figured, okay, so I've got to write about this guy and, and PTSD. So when, when I set out to do that, I did research on the book. I went to Indiana, and I and I did I looked at the old manuscripts. I talked to as many of his family members as I could. Mm. So I talked to his, his three oldest children, and they were wonderful, very interesting people who you can just imagine are the children of Kurt Vonnegut. One's a doc. The son is a doctor. The other two are artists, um, uh, Nanette and Edie. Um, and so I, I, I try to get close to the family. I try to get close to his friends. Most of them have passed away, but I could get to a few. Um, 
And um, then I also, because I was focusing on this PTSD issue, I also wanted to talk to soldiers, uh, current soldiers, yeah. past soldiers, soldiers from Vietnam, soldiers from Iraq and Afghanistan, so that I could create a full portrait of the way the book um, exists today. Wow. And it, it the, the relevance, I mean, that's one thing about art is that it, it supersedes time. If something's really art, it the, the aesthetic appreciation is is timeless yeah it doesn't yeah. you know and and i think he he's really got that unfortunately because this uh you know mass killing <laughs> continues it's it's a reality Oof. for those who may have just tuned in bert cohen here the show is keeping democracy alive we're talking about frankly one of my absolute heroes uh, just an amazing american author kurt vonnegut and our guest is tom roston who has a new book titled the Writer's Crusade, Kurt Vonnegut and the Many Lives of Slaughterhouse-Five. I wanted to ask about that many lives of Slaughterhouse-Five. What do you mean by that? Well, again, it was, it was a play on words. It's this notion of how um, the, the, the text itself, when Kurt Vonnegut was trying to write Slaughterhouse-Five, it went through one iteration after another. I, when I went and looked at the library and looked at the archives, I just found so many different lives of this book. Um, uh-huh. that he was struggling through. And so to me, that's one of the many lives. Um, but there's also the many lives, there's the re- refracted lives that you see in the book. There's his life, Kurt Vonnegut, uh-huh. the, the man's life that you see in the book. There's Billy Pilgrim's life, the, you know, his life that's in the book. Uh-huh. The many lives, it just, it yes. just, it just different, different lives of, of, of a book, of an idea, uh-huh. of a person, um, of a character. Um, yeah, so all of that. Yeah, and, and it wasn't uh, one-dimensional. That is for sure, for sure. Yeah, a lot of dimensions to it. And uh, what about the fantasy in Slaughterhouse-Five? Tralfalmador, and it's so easy for me to come up with that name. I haven't read the book in a uh, long, long time. But I remember Tralfalmador, its main character, Billy Pilgrim, intermittently becoming unstuck in time. What what do Billy Pilgrim's time and space travels represent? There's the horror that Billy experiences, but in, in what ways do such aspects contribute to the wonder and the beauty of the novel Slaughterhouse-Five? Well, one of the phenomenons of this book is that so many people can read it and think it's one thing, and so many people can read it and, and think it's something else, but also the same people can read a second time, and then they'll be like, oh my goodness, I had no idea that this was what it was about. Ah. And, I've, and I've come up across all, many, many people who have spoken to this. So what I'm, what I'm addressing here is that, yes, so um, Billy Pilgrim travels uh, in time, he travels in space, he gets picked up by the Tralfalmadorians, goes to this other planet. Um, and so many people read this book and they think that these things happen in, in the logic of the book. And that's fair. Um, I actually cannot recall what I felt when I was in high school and I, and I first read the book. But I know so many people who just said, yeah, I just thought it was a sci-fi novel. He goes on these weird, you know, he's this wacky yeah. guy. All these things happen to him. Um, and it's just a cool anti-war book. Um, but frankly, I have a very... Uh, clear for me idea of what this book is about and what happens and doesn't happen. And I do not think that he actually goes to outer space. And I do not yep. think he actually time travels. I think he's actually experiencing 
he experienced a trauma in war and he experiences disassociation. And so his brain is, is, is seeing himself uh, basically going into, into time, going to these places. And I think the way Kurt Vonnegut wrote the book, they're clear clues. And that's what I write about in my book. They're constant indications that, you know, Kurt is basically winking at us saying, you know, look at this, like, look what's happened to Billy now. And he's showing to us that these things aren't really happening to Billy. But if you want to read it that way, go for it. Yeah. But, uh, but if you want to go, you know, scratch a little deeper, you can see that, that no, it's not happening to him. And, and he wrote a lot of books. I have no idea how many books he wrote. Do, do you have any kind of count? I think it, I think it was, was it 14 novels? But, you know, he has a bunch of, he has some, lots of nonfiction, so it must be around 20 or so. Wow. And the, the slaughter of innocents in the Second World War is in many ways too big, too horrible, too pervasive for the human mind to process easily. Tell us, please, what you learned about the phrase, so it goes. So it goes. Oh yeah. So yeah. I, um, the the so it goes fa- phrase is 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 one of the things you know that people remember most um, from Slaughterhouse Five, and and I think it's a lot of people love it, and I think a lot of people also misunderstand it too, because a lot of people thought it was sort of like a dismissive, uh, you know, kind of cynical way to just throw off, you know, so it goes, so it goes. Yeah. But 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 really, it, it's it's quite a complex. Um, expression. It's 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 Kurt Vonnegut's. It, it's, it's he's trying to basically confront death um, in a way that I think is incredibly relatable. Um, basically, he's using humor. He's using um, he's using a, a stream. Uh, just the, the, a sense of horror. The, the the sense of of empathy for the human condition. But also just, it's like a lament. And yet at the same time, he's like, he's mm. resigning himself, but he's also saying we got to go on. He's saying everything. And it, it, it's, it's seemingly superficial, but I think it's incredibly deep in that it's saying death happens. Death is terrible. You got to laugh about it. You got to just kind of shrug your shoulders. You got to go on. But you also have to acknowledge that, God, it's really hard. Yeah, it is really hard. And, and, maybe, I mean, one of my interpretations of it is that, yeah, this is real people. We got to look at it. You know, you can say, so it goes. And that sort of shocks you like, what? Wait a minute. This is so it goes. And maybe that's part of the point. I don't know. Well, you know, I, I what, what he, the, I'm going to tell, I'm going to, if you don't mind, oh, please. Quote from my book. Yeah, yeah, okay. please. And th- th- this is something that um he, 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 he himself said that he wrote this in his book, uh, Palm Sunday, one of his, um, nonfiction books. Uh, he, he loved the author Celine. And this is what he said. Celine said, um, the French writer who's actually now no longer really, um, he was, he was anti-Semitic, so he's not really in good favor right now for mm. good reason. But, but Celine, um, said, uh, th- this is, this is what, uh, Kurt said. Sure. It was a clumsy way of saying what Celine managed to imply and everything he wrote in effect Death and suffering can't matter nearly as much as I think they do. Since they are so common, my taking them so seriously must mean that I am insane. Yeah. So basically, you know, death is just so awful, and yet it's all around us. How can we accept this reality? You know, we must be crazy. So it's like going through the, the filter of, of Kurt Vonnegut's brain, he, he came up with so it goes. Oh, interesting. 
Yeah, I, 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 an amazing uh, author, amazing, great American, in, in my opinion, Kurt Vonnegut. And he also gave us the term caress in another of his popular books, Cat's Cradle. And I think of the word often as I, what seems to be serendipitously meet people who I had not known, but are clearly, there's this connection. It's like, oh, okay. And it never ceases to amaze me how often I think of the word when first connecting with people, it seems really right to connect to. Like, oh, yes, of course, somehow I'm going to connect with these people. And I've tried to explain the term, but I suspect you can do it better. I wonder if you could tell uh, tell listeners a- and what this says about Kurt Vonnegut and his insight into humanity, this uh, caress idea. Well, I'm going to I'm going to take a step back and just say that I I am um, I got uh, I was scolded by Suzanne McConnell, who used to be one of Kurt's students and is a well-known author in her own right and was a teacher of, of, of writing for many, many years, because she said that I used the word caress uh, incorrectly in email to her. <laughs> so because I, I was trying to like say, yes, we're all part of the same caress. And she said I used it wrong. But but I'm going to try to tell you, okay? Yes. So caress, caress is basically, yes, what you were suggesting, which is that when people come together with um, who have the same sentiment, who have the same inclination, and yet it's sort of serendipitous that they all come together. So there's no plan to do right, it. Right, right. Um, and yet by, by some sort of choice, some sort of like, it, you know, as, as I mentioned before, he was, he was a um, – he was an atheist, but there's some sort of like almost spiritual connection mm-hmm. to these people. And so that's the caress. And yes, when you think about all of us who love Kurt Vonnegut, you have to think of us as being part of a caress. But I'm going to again refer to the fact that McConnell, you know, scolded me. And I'm going to say that the, it's best often to look at caress in relationship to Grand Falloon. Oh, you yes. know the word? Yeah. Remind which is another. That. Which is another word that um, that Kurt Vonnegut came up with for Cat's Cradle in the, in the book Cat's Cradle, where where a grand falloon is more of it's another kind of group of people, um, but they're kind of like they're um, they're more officially structured to be together. Like I, I, it's, it's less an act of free will or, or something almost like, as I said, spiritual, as much as it's something where you just all have to be together. Like we're all Americans. So we're all part of the same Grand Falloon, um, as opposed to people who love, uh, I don't know, the band Kiss, right? right? right. Those guys and girls are a part of a caress. Uh-huh. Uh, so hopefully that makes a, a, enough of a distinction. Yeah, I, I think it probably does. It's sort of like organic. You can't plan it. It happens by surprise. Right, and, right, and, right. And it does happen. Um, right. And uh, as people who listen to this show regularly uh, are no doubt aware, in recent years, I have become absorbed in the First World War. Uh, it's funny, about 20 years ago, I thought, yeah, I know about World War II, but all I know about World War I is it came before Second World War. <laughs> <laughs> one, two, one, two. Oh, my goodness. And it's it's like it's connected with me somehow. I, the horror, the horror. It was a mad catastrophe that accomplished Nothing. And as Harry Patch, the last British soldier uh, of World War I to die, said, it wasn't worth a single life. As the war went beyond its expected few weeks, a few months, when use of force was failing, what did each side do? They added more force, more weapons that would kill more people more quickly. No one won. Everyone was damaged. Back then, it was called shell shock. 
Today we know it as, of course, PTSD, which Kurt Vonnegut uh, brought us aware of, and it's been an amazing thing. I have been thinking that only a seriously deranged person would not experience serious trauma from the incredible horror that they see. I mean, how, if you're a sane person and you see this horrible stuff, how can you not be affected by it? The shell shock and PTSD, I wonder, perhaps they're signs of a truly sane, healthy, moral person. How can one not experience recurring nightmares and go a bit nuts? What, what do you think Vonnegut would have to say about this? Well, I first want to say that the, without knowing it, you've actually quoted some of their, their early um, psychiatrists uh, in the military when they were first studying um, war trauma. Um, this is actually during uh, just before World War II, very important um, early psychiatrists. That's exactly what they said. They said, we'd be worried about people who do not experience trauma or do not start having these you know, certain kind of symptoms um, after seeing bodies being blown up. Um, um, but I, I wanted to jump on that, and I've immediately forgotten your question. So what was your question? What, what do you think uh, Kurt Vonnegut would, would have to say about the idea of, you know, a sane person? Uh, yeah, yeah. And how could you not have shell shock and PTSD? Well, see, that's interesting. It, it's a very interesting question because, um, um, you know, he he wrote this whole book about the horror of war, right? And he wanted everyone to know how terrible— um, it was and how it affects this one character, uh, Billy Pilgrim. And yet he, as I say in my book, and this is very much what my book is about, he himself, Kurt Vonnegut, always denied that he was emotionally, psychologically affected by the war. So there's this interesting um, uh, juxtaposition or inconsistency where he said war was terrible, but not for me. What? In fact, he said, he said, he said, he said, um, if you're going to go out and have an adventure, you might as well make you, you might as well really see something, and that he was referring to his World War War Two experience. So, I mean, what the way I interpret it now, I'm not going to. I never. I don't say in my book whether or not I think he had Kurvanigat uh, had PTSD. Um, I don't think it's fair to say about him. I'm willing to say that about Billy Pilgrim, but not about Kurt. But the, what's more important is that Kurt came from an era where there was no such thing. It, it just you, right. you didn't you, you didn't believe in that, and so you you know you had a uh, a stiff upper lip, uh, and then you became an alcoholic. You know that's what that's what um that's that and you know you wouldn't talk about it. Um so so you know whether or not he was traumatized, I think he was in many different ways. I don't think you could necessarily say he had a disorder, because you know the human mind and how it's affected is so complicated. And as I write about in my book, he experienced such awful things. His mother committed suicide yeah. on uh, when on on Mother's Day. Right before he was went deployed, I mean, he he experienced terrible things. He had a history of depression in his family, yeah. um, and uh, and and alcoholism too. And so, I mean, he he was an he was an alcoholic. He was depressed. Um, he was damaged by the war. Um, so, uh, you know, was that uh, does that all count as him having been uh, having PTSD or shell shock or whatever you want to call it? That's the matter of interpretation. Um, but yeah, he, he, he thought war was terrible, but interestingly, um, he, he didn't, doesn't really, you know, he was never willing to really admit it's a personal effect on himself. Yeah. And, uh, he did live to be what 87 or something like that. Yeah. 
Yeah. 84, 84, yeah. And and we can talk about his his later life as as it goes on. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about one of the greatest American writers who his insights, gosh, if we just learned them, oh, my God. Gosh, <laughs> you know, and, and, and incorporated them into our lives. Kurt Vonnegut is the author we're talking about with our guest today, Tom Rostin, whose new book is titled The Writer's Crusade, Kurt Vonnegut and the Many Lives of Slaughterhouse-Five. And readers of Slaughterhouse-Five have wondered if Billy Pilgrim, Billy Pilgrim was Kurt Vonnegut. You found who the character was, in fact, based on. Tell us about Joe Crone. C-R-O-N-E. And why did Vonnegut wait to reveal this until after Crone's parents had died? What about the fact of his passivity within the context of war? Talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Kurt had, you know, this real life experience of, of being a prisoner of war and then you know, witnessing the bombing of Dresden. And then, yes, he took him 23 years to write about it. He did all these different versions of the, of the book. And he often would write about this sad sack character, um, and it ended up being Billy Pilgrim. And it wasn't until the 90s that he began to talk openly about the fact that that character, Billy Pilgrim, was based on an actual soldier who was in his unit named Joe Crone, who was from upstate New York. I think he was an engineering student. Um, and, and, and poor Crone, he was just the kind of guy that you just imagine does not belong in the military. He was dropping things out of his bag. He couldn't keep up. Um, and he was gawky and he just didn't seem, you know, the, the right stuff to be, uh, fighting in a, in, you know, fighting in a war. And then when they were caught and they were put in prison, um, poor Crone, uh, just became more and more listless and just seemed to give up on life. And he would even trade his food for cigarettes. And, and the other soldiers would do that knowing very well that this guy was not in his, in the right, in his right mind until eventually, um, Crone, uh, died. He just, he had this, what Kurt refers to in, in real life. Uh, he referred to him having a thousand yard stare where he was just mm. looking out and you could just tell he had given up on life. And sure enough, he died. Um, and, and I think that is one of the, um, the uh, experiences, uh, one of the people that, that really had a strong imprint on, on Kurt, and he wanted to write about it. And so um, he created this character based on Joe Crone. And, um, and he you know, changed him a lot, but, but that, that's who he was based on. And, and so he, he started to talk about it in the 90s because Crone's uh, parents had, um, had passed away, and I think he didn't want to affect them emotionally by uh, you know, revealing that, that his famous book was based on, on their son. Uh, interesting. And, and as you describe uh, Joe Crone and his situation, you know, I think about these days, the, the reverence for all things military, I frankly would never have expected coming you know, out of the context of the Vietnam War. But how, you know, and, and in World War I, it was about being a man, being a man, you know, if you don't climb up out of the trench, you're not a real man. And now you got this culture war going on with these right wingers, you know, talking about uh, male dominance and control once again. And so here is Joe Crone, Billy Pilgrim, who's not that way, and who was looked down on at the time and, and, and a curiosity, feels to me like 
Now, who was the nuts one here? Who was the crazy one here? You know, the macho man who, you know, these colors don't run, they fire back, that kind of stuff. And, and mm-hmm. the, the macho there that, that's going on now. Your thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, you know, I referred to this before. It's amazing how, I mean, I I, I was, I, I, re, I read and reread this book so many times while working on my book. Um, and I am just amazed at how, awful and sad and listless and just inert uh billy pilgrim is and i don't think you really catch that uh when you read it for the first time i think most don't read catch that when they're you know teenagers reading this book because it's those flights of uh, fantasy and and fancy um of going into trofalmador and and the jumping back and forth in time and the humor that that kurt vonnegut um you know, uses in the book that it just seems kind of like a fun, crazy book. But if you just do a straight line of what happens to, to Billy Pilgrim, he does nothing. He just wanders through life and just is just sad. He breaks out into tears and he, he often wants to just get shot himself. Mm. I mean, he's suicidal. It's just, he's the saddest character uh, in, in American literature possibly, but he does not feel like that. And again, that's one of the brilliant turns. That, um, that 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 Vonnegut commits in, in making this in writing this book. So yeah, he he is the um, the the anti what everything that you imagine uh, a soldier should be. You know that strong <laughs> macho one, and that's that's what Kurt said. That what you know when when he first, in the first chapter of Slaughterhouse Five, he says the real inspiration for how he would write his book was when um, he talked to his uh, the wife of his best friend Bernardo V. O'Hare, Mary O'Hare who said to him, oh, you're going to write this book and you're going to make everyone sound like John Wayne and Frank Sinatra yeah. and be sound, and, and everyone's going to want to go back and fight wars again. <laughs> and, and, and Kurt said, no, no, you know, you're right. That's it. I'm not going to do that. And, that, and again, you know, we're talking about mission. That was his mission, to write a book about, a, about war that made it seem unattractive. And I don't think anyone wants to be Billy Pilgrim. True. And I, I remember, uh, I believe it was Billy Pilgrim who on a number of occasions said, yeah, you guys go on without me, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> and just leave me here to die. Leave me here to die, and it, it does kind of bring up the question to me anyway. What's sanity here? You know, okay, he he didn't want to live, uh, but uh, is you know just blasting everything, going over the trenches when you know you're going to die, you know, and not make any headway at all in the First World War and going on and on and on uh, about that. Uh, what, what kind of, you know, that's sanity. That's where we put our money. Right. <laughs> there, right. th- there's a, a scene in Slaughterhouse-Five, and I still think of Schlachthofunf, which is the German mm-hmm. for <laughs> when Billy, And this is a hundred years ago that I read it. I still think about that. When Billy Pilgrim uh, watches a newsreel on television, it's in reverse. Bomb blasts on the ground shrink and disappear as the bombers suck the bombs back into their bomb bays. Aviators become babies, and the mineral materials for war go back into the earth. And I'll tell you, when I came back from my tour of World War I battle sites in 2019 and Monument, some of those monuments had in giant letters, glory. I was thinking, what? Glory? Mm -hmm. I had a dream when I came back that instead of that reality in the 19-teens, governments had created academies for those men. Beautiful, classic buildings and grounds 
full of art and libraries, free education, and a safe, nurturing environment for each to become more human and more full. Maybe Billy Pilgrim and I had the same dreams. Hmm. What, mm-hmm. what would Kurt Vonnegut have said about that? I mean, just think about the money that's wasted and the generations. You know, everybody who came out of World War One was severely damaged, not just the shell shock people. And what would Kurt Vonnegut and maybe even Billy Pilgrim say about, you know, the foolish concept of, of our tax dollars building uh, wonderful academies for these men to become better human beings. Yeah, I mean, I think you're you're talking about the dream, you know. That we, you know, it's, I, I think it's an Oscar Wilde quote: uh, "Living in the gutter, staring at the stars, or something." Um, the, the the whole that 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 wonderful uh, sequence in in the book where where he sees the film going backwards. It's this idea that God, if we could only turn back time, mm. if we could only change things, if we could just change our values. Um, if we could just do things a little differently, if we could, you know, not die this way and and, and just be better people and 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 put value on education rather than fighting, you know, it's it's uh, it's idealism. You know, Kurt Vonnegut was an idealist in many ways, mm-hmm. and he wanted us to to imagine a better world. As as depressed and cynical as he was, you know that he also was hoping for something better. Uh-huh. Um, and, um, you know, he raised his kids that way, I think. And, and I think all of us who love Kurt Vonnegut's books, um, I don't, you know, as much as there's a lot of cynicism and darkness in them, but I think we come away from those books feeling better about ourselves and feeling better about, you know, tomorrow. Um, and again, that goes back to your caress, you know, what you mentioned, you know, we're, we're all, these are people who are, we're all people who confront like, the harsh realities of life, but we try to, you know, keep going and, and, uh, go at it with a sense of humor, um, and, and also creativity. And that's what, that's what I think yeah. your dream is. Your dream is creative. And, um, and, and what Kurt Vonnegut did with the, uh, the turning back time sequence and, and the entire book. Yeah. Wow. And, and just being human and. I know, you know, later in life, I don't know that much about this, but he would get letters from young people uh, fairly often and and respond very thoughtfully to them. What, what about those, not hangers-on, but, but people who, young people who, who kind of revered him? Tell us about how he dealt with, with the people who would, who would write him letters and... Uh, they, they, a lot of them, you know, became published, and there was some real wisdom in there. Yeah, I, I, I um, just again, in looking through the archives, I found a lot of those letters. It's amazing, you know. You just, you don't, you can't. It's hard to imagine celebrities these days uh, doing the same thing. You know, sure, some a lot of people do it, sure, but I mean, yes, I think he really, really cared when when young people would reach out to him, and when teachers, he loved teachers. When a teacher somewhere in Middle America would, you know, send him a letter about their their class. He would he would write back to them, and um, and he would encourage them, and uh, he, he was he was very very thoughtful. But you know it's like he he was he was so grounded in his own way. He would get so mad at some of the librarians who wouldn't like they didn't have his books, you know, in certain like towns in in Indiana. Um, he, he was he was a true eccentric character who who had his his eyes on the ground, but also up up in, up in the sky, and yeah. and he. And he um, he, uh, you know, I, I, we don't live in that world anymore. You know, when when there was mm. a public intellectual 
such as he, a person who you really, really, you know, everyone looked to uh, as a sort of uh, uh, weather vane for where we should be going uh, with our, you know, with the country. It is just, it's, there's such anti-intellectualism now yeah. um, that, um, that uh, you know, it's, it's nice to think about Kurt. I really enjoyed writing this book because it, it, it was, it was, he was a wonderful person to, to spend time with in, in my own way. Oh, I, I just, as you can tell, I, I and so many people of my generation just adored him, absolutely adored him, and, and, and still do. And I, I do wonder about, uh, you know, the, the possibilities that, uh, that he raised about, uh, about being human and that, that we don't, you know, to question what this so-called sanity is, what normal is, and uh, the, the the anti-intellectualism that you mentioned, boy, is that ever scary? But I think one of the the, the reasons, I mean, the the orange former guy uh, used to talk about how he loved the uneducated, and maybe what what the the far right is afraid of and wanting to smash and destroy is. Uh, intellectualism, people thinking about it. And maybe that's one of the things about Kurt Vonnegut is that uh, it was a different period of time when there could be, people could revere intellectuals. But the fact that this this power that there is in the United States and elsewhere in the world now too, this national uh, militarism, uh, that the, you're not supposed to think Creatively, they're against creative thinking, and mm -hmm. and it, it seems like perhaps now is a time in this you know context of of overpowering anti intellectualism that uh, maybe there's more of a need for Kurt Vonnegut than ever. Oh yeah, I think so. You know, I, I think I think he would, he's probably staying in his grave over yeah. Trump to Russia, all of that. Yeah, he, which all of which he missed. And I I noticed later in his life. I believe I may be wrong. Was he not living on Cape Cod somewhere? I think he was. No, he was. He was in New York. Oh, New York. He was in. Yeah, he was in Midtown. Well, I get. I, I get to be wrong now and then. Huh. But uh, th that there was. I felt for the guy. He seemed to be very depressed. But what he was expressing in his depression was reality. Like he's really nailing it. I mean, he's not putting any, uh, you know, nice gloss on this stuff. It was depressing, and yet, I, when I think the, the, one of the beauties about Kurt Vonnegut was the hope, the understanding of the possibilities, the potentials of of humanity. That it was like a combination. You know, there was humor and horror, and depression, and that. And underneath the depression, maybe there was like this beautiful vision of what could be. Well, his his last speech that he wrote, um, it was supposed to, I think it was uh, the year of Vonnegut or some some there was some like special honorary year that um uh, that it was about to come, uh, and so he was going to do a, a big speech in Indianapolis, his hometown. Uh -huh. And he, so he wrote the speech, but then unfortunately he passed away just before he was able to uh -huh. deliver it. And there's a lot of wonderful, you know, yes, hopeful elements in that speech. But I have to tell you, I, I it, it's, um, I, I think he was just straight up depressed in his last few years. I don't think, I don't think there's any way to really put a silver lining around right. how he was feeling. I think, 
um, it, it, it was not just a political thing. It wasn't just an intellectual thing. I think Kurt Vonnegut wrestled with depression his whole life. Mm. And um, I think it really got the worst of him. And, and he had a very difficult marriage. And um, I think he was, uh, yeah, I think he was unhappy the last few years. And, uh, and there's no way to really get around it. I mean, we like to think the best of our, you know, our heroes. Right. But, but I think he was, he was in a pretty bad state. And also, you know, honestly, after he got up to that, the high of when he was like 47 years old in 1969, mm. when he got that book out, finally, it's, you know, he had a lot of good years after that, for sure, you know, the, the next 40 years of his life. But um, when you when you achieve that thing that you've always meant to do and you get to that high yeah. and he had been struggling so hard for it, he had been working so hard, he had had so many failures, he had some had so many rejections. I think the, the second half of his, of his life was uh, was challenging, very, very challenging in ways that are kind of sadder than the first half of his life. Even though he experienced such awful things, you know, Dresden and his mother's suicide, and his sister's death, early death, all these terrible things. I think Kurt Vonnegut, the man, had a, uh, he was moving forward, but after he finished that book, I'm not sure as much. Mm. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Tom Rostin, who's got a new book titled The Writer's Crusade, Kurt Vonnegut, in the many lives of Slaughterhouse Five, and I, I remember reading some of his uh, d depressing words and thinking, you know, he's right. How can you be hopeful? I mean, mm. look where we're going here, people. Mm -hmm. How can you not be depressed? And and, and to me, that sort of uh, you know reinforced the values that he obviously had uh, inside, and 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 what made him. What made him tick and what made him such a hero for people? Why, why do you mm -hmm. think he's been such a, a hero for my generation and for so many people? And just, you know, why is he up on this fantastic pedestal that not a lot of people get to do? Well, I, I think um, part of it was that he had, it took him so long to be successful yeah. that he, he got older you know, so in the 60s, he was in his 40s, right? Mm -hmm. In the 1960s, he was in his 40s. So he had the wisdom of being a 40-something-year-old guy who had, you know, been around the block a lot. But he had this, you know, irascible wit and um, and that spoke to younger people. And he had this, um, you know, this uh, iconoclastic sentiment yeah, that, that again sure. spoke to the 60s generation so he was like he was this you know he was the uncle that that no. all you 60s kids <laughs> you know wished you had and and was you know speaking the truth truth to power but mm -hmm. also really funny and really dirty and writing about assholes and just like you know stuff that no you know no one else really was doing right then so he was just a fun ride. And then, and then, you know, it was like the whole birth of science fiction and, and he was like doing, you know, it was really interesting sci-fi. So, you know, he, he just spoke to this generation that um, needed to hear that kind of a voice. And, and, um, and, it, you know, I think a lot of people stuck with him. He, and, and rediscovered his older books that they were great too. And his newer books. And then he just kept at it. Um, and, and, I, and I do think that there is what I've discovered is that there is a new generation, uh -huh. people who are, who are younger, who who are loving what 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 he wrote, and and um, it, it does resonate. And I got to just ask you, you got you got to read write the read the book again. You just have to take the time. It's a short book. Yeah, I think you'll be shocked at how good the book is, and and how it will speak to you 
differently than it ever did before, um, because it does. It just it, it it is a masterpiece. Yes, and it and it changes with the times that we're living in, but mm. also with the, with the age of the reader who's reading it. So if if I'm I'm also going to ask you to rename your 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 show, keeping Kurt Vonnegut alive, yeah. just for this episode, right? Because we should we got and we got to keep this book alive because. I, I promise you, it's it's short. You can finish it in less than a week. Easily, you can probably finish it in one night. Yeah, and it's it's gonna blow your socks off. It's it's a really really fun, interesting, meaningful ride. Yeah, it's it's one of the most powerful books I ever read, and I've, I've read a lot of books. And you call his no, this particular novel a work of metafiction. Slaughterhouse Five mm-hmm. is about a reality we generally make sure to look away from. What do you mean by metafiction? What makes that aspect one of the most unique and attractive aspects of this novel? And also really relevant today, I have to say. So metafiction oh, yeah. just basically means that it goes beyond the um, reality of the story itself and bleeds into the reality that we live in today. So he's basically, you know, if you imagine there's a, you're basically knocking down a wall and then you're opening up the, the, the story out of a room and you're seeing everything else that's outside of that room. And that's what he did. He wrote this book. The, the beginning of the novel is about him. It's about Kurt Vonnegut, a person who really is writing this book. So he's t- telling you about him writing this book. So it's a, it's nonfiction. And then he starts telling you the fictional story. And then he ends the book going back to the nonfiction. So it's going back and forth. So it's going a fictional. It's a fictional story, but it's also a nonfictional story. And I just, again, talk about prescient. Now that's all we ever talk about today. All these, all, all the shows you see um, on HBO and on Netflix and in movie theaters now, this is what we love to talk about are these um, these simulated realities or the metaverse or these alternate universes. And that's what he was dealing with. He wasn't the very first one, but he was one of the early ones. And I think um, it, it helps us, uh, it, 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 it speaks to why the book, again, is so relevant today and so much fun to read. And and who is your target audience? I can imagine the new generation, the, the kids in their 20s, uh, might be, be part of that. Who, who is the target audience for this book? And uh, how, when did it come out, anyway? Were you talking about my book? Yeah. My book came out in November uh, of uh-huh. 2021. Recently. Yeah. Yeah. And um, uh, I, I, was, I was very much writing for, I guess, two audiences. One, people who love Kurt Vonnegut. Mm-hmm. And two people who might love Kurt Vonnegut and don't know it and don't know it yet. Um, And so, you know, it's basically everyone who's already read him and that's, you know, zillions of people, but also the younger people, Um, you know, people who are under 30, I guess, who don't, you know, who, who, you know, who no no longer come across it in their schools because it is being taught less in schools than it was back in the seventies and the eighties. And so uh, that was my goal is to, to reach those two audiences. And I can't help but think that that the younger people who discover the book will be awfully glad they did. Awfully glad they did. Your book is titled The Writer's Crusade, Kurt Vonnegut and the Many Lives of Slaughterhouse-Five. And who is the publisher? Abrams. Abrams. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I, I really, it would be so great to have a new generation like glom on to Kurt Vonnegut and uh, and learn what we learned and maybe uh, bring some wisdom and some better ways of dealing with life. There's a lot to learn from uh, Kurt, Kurt Vonnegut and your book, too. Thank you so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks. It was great talking. Nice, nice, very nice.
Okay. 